Welcome to another edition of Fair Territory, and we are going to start off talking this week about a team I didn't think I'd be talking about all year, except maybe to rip them once in a while. That team is the first place team in the National League Central, the Pittsburgh Pirates. 16-7, ladies and gentlemen. They're up a half game on the Brewers, three on the Cubs, six and a half on the Cardinals already. Now, I know it's early. Things will change. We see this every year. But if you had the Pirates as your surprise team on your bingo card, congratulations to you because I sure didn't have them on mine. So you might be asking, what is going on here? For the most part, the biggest thing is starting pitching. The Pirates are first in the majors, first in quality starts. They've got 14. They've seen Keller develop into practically an ace. They've got Roancy Contreras, Rich Hill, the veteran, Vince Velasquez throwing sliders out of his mind yesterday. A lot of good things going in that rotation. And yet when I spoke with someone from another club yesterday, a club that had faced the Pirates, he pointed out to their pitching development as a whole. And you see that with guys like Keller, of course, and maybe even Velasquez now that he's using his slider even more. But you also see it with Colin Holderman, with Dwayne Underwood, two of their stalwarts in the bullpen. David Bednar, the closer, he's a veteran, he's established. But so far, so good on the pitching front for the Pirates. And when you're a team trying to compete, where does it all begin? It begins with that pitching. Now, their offense, I'm not totally convinced. Actually, I'm not totally convinced by the team as a whole. But the offense is the one area where maybe you can question. Now, they're 10th in the league in runs per game as we stand here on Monday morning. But three of those games that they played, they had 13 or more runs. It skewers it, especially in a small sample size early. Will McCutcheon be good this good all season? Carlos Santana? Fair questions. But... At the same time, they're getting great work out of Sawinski and Connor Joe, and it's just a really good vibe around that team right now. So give the Pirates all the credit in the world. Again, I didn't see this coming, and as I wrote, I believe, a couple of weeks ago, who knows? Maybe now, instead of trading Brian Reynolds, they will add to Brian Reynolds. So good for the Pirates. Great start. The NL Central in particular is interesting because it's not just the Pirates playing surprisingly well. I would put the Cubs in that category as well. And like the Pirates, they're getting strong starting pitching. They are first in the National League in rotation ERA. I don't know that we expected that to happen. And I know it's only late April, but they have shown some good things in their starting pitching, which we saw at the end of last year as well. Now, the one thing I like about the Cubs, and I wrote this last week, you can say this about any team that is playing well. Teams that are playing well often talk about their chemistry, their vibe, how the guys get along. Everything is great. I'm sure the Pirates would say that. I'm sure the Rays would say that. We can go through any team playing well, and they'd say the same. The difference with the Cubs, and the reason why I sort of buy this, is twofold. One, they've got a core now. They've established a core with some long-term extensions. It's Swanson, it's Horner in the infield, it's Suzuki and Hap in the outfield. These guys are all diligent workers. They're the kinds of guys you want on your team. And the other thing involves some of the players that they've brought in. Swanson is one of them. Bellinger's another. Edwin Rios, Eric Hosmer, Trey Mancini, Jan Gomes. Gomes came last year. These are all players who have appeared in at least one World Series. One at least World, one World Series, I should say. Tyone Stroman 
have pitched in an NLCS or ALCS. They pitched in League's Championship Series. Suzuki played in the Japan Series. Even Tucker Barnhart, the backup catcher, has postseason experience. So they have this sense about them, this feeling about them of experience, of winning in the past. Their manager, David Ross, won a World Series with the Red Sox. Their first base coach, Mike Napoli, participated in three World Series. All of this stuff matters. You can't measure it, but it's there, and it's making a difference for the Cubs. Ultimately, don't get me wrong, as I wrote, talent prevails, talent always prevails, and if you don't have that, you can have all the great chemistry in the world. It's not going to matter. But the Cubs have some talent, too, and with the Pirates, they are showing to be a quite interesting team in the early going. Now, I was in San Francisco over the weekend. I want to talk about the two teams I saw there, the Mets and the Giants. The Mets won the first two games, lost the second two in that series. But the thing that impressed me most being around them is that two of their best players, Pete Alonso and Brandon Nimmo, have this quality that you so often see in great players. You see it in Lindor, too, and you see it in others, but I want to talk about Alonso and Nimmo. And the quality they have is that they are great, and yet they want to be greater. You see it with Alonso this season, what he has done with his selectivity. The Mets talked to him at the end of last season. They said, listen, your plate discipline needs to improve. That's the one thing. If you can get to there in a better place, you're going to be that much better of a hitter. Alonzo took those words to heart. His chase rate has decreased dramatically this year. You see it. It was in the low 30s to mid 30s, the first four seasons of his career. Now it is below 30. I know early, but still, that is a huge difference. And the other thing Alonzo has done, and we talked about this, Mets fans know about it. He lost weight. It's been written as 10 pounds. I heard it was closer to 20 over the weekend. Whatever the case might be, he ran every day. Why? because he wanted to improve his agility at first base. And something that defense is very important to him. He wants to be an all-around player. He wants to be better than he has been. And let's face it, Pete Alonso is one of the big stars in the game. Brandon Nimmo, another example. Now, here's a guy who signed a free agent contract to come back to the Mets over the winter. Eight years, $162 million. I asked him if he felt the need to justify that deal, as players often do. And Nimmo said, no, it's not like that. What I want to do is get more out of myself. I believe there is more in there. The coaches, the Mets coaches, constantly tell him, you are better, even better, than you think you are. And then Nimmo, to me, cited a quote from the late John Wooden. And I was surprised to hear this, but it kind of summed up what he is feeling. And I'm going to read it to you. I said it on the air the other day. I might have stumbled through it a little bit. There's a lot of words, but I'll get through it here. What he said, quoting John Wooden, is don't measure yourself by what you have accomplished, but by what you should have accomplished with your ability. And that's the approach Nimmo is taking this season. Alonzo and Nimmo, two Mets who already had accomplished a great deal and are still looking to do more. You see that so often with the best players in our game. It is something I enjoy writing and reporting about. Because it's just cool to see these guys who are already there, already making a lot of money in many cases, striving for even more. Now, the other team I saw this weekend, the Giants. The Giants were my biggest potential surprise team coming into the season. Not the Pirates. I should have had the Pirates, but of course, no one had the Pirates. 
But I felt the Giants, because of their starting pitching, might be better than we thought. I didn't know that they were going to be as good as the Dodgers, Padres, even the Diamondbacks, but I thought this team could be okay. Remember, they brought in Stripling and Minaya. They had Webb, DiSclefani, Wood, Cobb. That's a pretty good rotation, and it's proven to be that. We're seeing that. Even though Minaya has struggled, Stripling hasn't been great either. Wood is on the IL for a few weeks. This is a solid rotation. I felt that was a great starting point for the Giants getting closer to where they were in 21 than they were in 22. Hasn't happened just yet. They started 6-13 and before winning those two games against the Mets over the weekend. That helps. It also helps that Jock Peterson came back last night and that they're going to get Hanniger and Austin Slater back this week against the Cardinals. Both those guys have been on the IL all season. Both are right-handed hitters. The Giants have struggled like crazy against lefties, though they did better over the weekend. The Giants now will have a fuller complement of position players than they've had all season. That will help. They've still got a lot of problems. Defense is one. We know that. Brandon Crawford at shortstop. He's 36 years old. He's already banged up. He's not the same, even though he had a big three-run homer on Saturday. That could be an issue for them. The bullpen has been an issue. I expect it will be an issue at times. But if they get that starting pitching, then things start to balance out. And I do expect that to happen. They've had some weird stats in the early going, the Giants. Their pitchers lead the majors in ground ball percentage. That's good, even though with a shakier infield defense, it's not as beneficial as it could be. But their pitchers also have the highest home run to fly ball rate in the majors. So when they give up a fly ball, it's generally going out. Logan Webb going into his start on Saturday, he had given up 13 fly balls this season. Five had gone out for homers. It's crazy. These things will normalize as time goes on. Are the Giants a good team? I don't know if they're a good team. Are they my logical pick as a surprise team? Well, it's not looking like it right now. But I do believe that they're going to play better in the coming weeks now that they've got some of their players back. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is a segment of the show in which I go deeper into a story I might have written or delve more deeply into a big story that might have occurred in the previous week. And oh yes, there was a big story last week. You might have seen a little bit of information about it, seen some clips on television. Max Scherzer, the ejection, the 10-game suspension, the whole brouhaha. Now, Max was suspended for using a foreign substance and he felt that he did nothing wrong. I'm not going to go into all that again today and rehash the pros, the cons, what might have happened. What I want to talk about is something that Max said after he accepted the suspension. He didn't appeal because he felt with an MLB-appointed arbitrator he had no chance. He probably was right about that. But what he said after the suspension raised an important question. And I want to go to the quote first of all. The quote was this. I wish there was a modification to bring spin rates into play, to be able to let that be the threshold of when the umpire can check. I still don't understand how I'm deemed cheating or guilty of that without that going on. Now what Max is talking about is the subjective judgment of the umpires that is used to determine whether pitchers are using foreign substances as opposed to the objective spin rate data that is available to baseball that we all look at when we're trying to figure out when pitchers are cheating, right? Hey, his spin rate's up, man. He must be doing something. 
Max's thinking is, if we're doing that, why aren't we using that to determine which players are using foreign substances and which players are not? Okay, let's start at the beginning and I'll try to explain why baseball does it this way. Go back to 2021, when baseball first started to crack down on sticky substances. The reason they did it at that time was obviously there was a lot of talk and a lot of action with the pitchers about those guys using things that they shouldn't have been using. And what they did, major league officials, is basically order the umpires to enforce the existing rules. Now the existing rules, which have been on the books for quite some time, state that the enforcement of those rules is done by the umpires. So to change the rules, if baseball was to do that now, they probably would have to go to the union and collectively bargain an adjustment of that nature. You can't just change the rules without telling the union. There is a process involved. Now, would the union object? Probably they would. And they would object because there are several reasons why spin rates are problematic when trying to figure out which players are using and which players are not. So that's where we start. The umpires enforce these rules. To change that, you'd have to go to the union, you'd have to possibly do that, and baseball really would rather just do it more cleanly, have the umpires continue doing what they've done for years and years. So what is problematic about spin rates? Well, as I understand it from talking to people on both sides, there are a lot of things that are problematic. Start off with this. You don't have a uniform baseline for each pitcher. What his spin rates are right now. Now you could measure them and you could get that baseline, but you might have a situation where some pitchers are already using foreign substances and their baseline would include their use of foreign substances. So you effectively would be grandfathering in cheaters. Uh, that's not good. Uh, that's not what you want. And that is a huge problem. Now also with spin rates, they fluctuate over the course of a game, over the course of a season. And actually, they drop generally during the course of a game. So think about this. If a pitcher's spin rate stay the same over the course of a game, is he cheating? Because his spin rate should be dropping? Do you ding him for that? I don't know that you can. And in fact, I believe that you can't. It's a problem. So that's one problem. Also, spin rates can be affected by weather, by pitcher changing his mechanics, all kinds of variability comes into play, and that's a concern. That's a concern I heard from people on both sides, that there's simply too much that can change, that will throw off the measurement, and that makes spin rates a poor standard. And there's a lesser thing too, where the umpire-led enforcement enables them to catch pitchers who are cheating without trying to improve their spin rates. That's the kind of thing we're talking about with spitballs, for instance. That's a lesser thing, okay. And finally, I don't know that we have to fix a situation that isn't broken. And I'm talking about the enforcement. We've had three suspensions, three ejections, since the crackdown began in 21. Scherzer was the third. That's not exactly an epidemic. Now, maybe you can say if you use spin rates, you'd catch more. I don't know that that's true. But it's not that the sport is being disrupted right now. And Major League Baseball would say that the situation or the difference between Herman and Scherzer, what we saw over the course of the last two weeks or so, demonstrates that the umpires are able to distinguish 
between what is over the line, Scherzer, and what is not, in their view, Herman. Herman, they determined, did not use substances that were helping him throughout the course of the game. So, to conclude, baseball believes the situation is working. I'm not sure the union believes otherwise. And I don't see it changing anytime soon, even though Max Scherzer wants spin rates to be used, even though his agent Scott Boris has talked about going to an objective, verifiable standard. Those standards exist, but they're problematic. And that's why I don't expect anything to change. All right, you've been waiting all week. We've got a new dude and dork of the week, and we're going to get to it right now. Dude of the week, this was tough. I must admit, this was tough this week. We had a lot of strong candidates. Adoles Garcia, five for five, three homers, two doubles. That's a strong candidate in one night. James Outman, two two-homer games against the Cubs. That's a strong candidate. Oakland Mayor Sheng Tao for standing up to the A's and calling them out and saying you will no longer negotiate with them. Strong candidate. I like it. But the person I'm going to go with is James Outman's teammate, Max Muncie. And Max Muncie is on an absolute tear. He leads the majors with 11 homers, past Pete Alonso on Sunday. He has 10 homers in his last 13 games. A stunning run. And it's a particularly stunning run considering the way Muncie started the season, striking out 16 times in his first 41 plate appearances. Changed his mechanics, went back to his step-back move in the box, and voila, he's Max Muncie again. So good for Muncie. Good for him for identifying what was wrong, for being able to fix it in the middle of the season. That is not easy to do. And really, just seeing him do what he can do again after going through the issues he did last season physically, trying to get back to where he was. This is the Max Muncy we know. This is the Max Muncy the Dodgers need. He is the dude of the week. Now, the dork of the week, I generally don't like to have repeat offenders. Name someone dork of the week twice in a span of a month. But there comes times in any show's existence when you need to adjust. Now, I gave this person dork of the week earlier because he put such a bad team on the field. That team is the Oakland A's. And I'm going to give that person, John Fisher, the owner of the A's, dork of the week again because of the Las Vegas move, the planned move, I should say, to Las Vegas. It's not done yet. And as my colleague at The Athletic, Tim Kawakami, pointed out in a great column he wrote over the weekend, you can't exactly assume the A's have a deal done until they're playing in this new stadium that they've been talking about for years. They talked about it in Fremont, California, in San Jose. They talked about building a new stadium on a site at the Coliseum where they now play. They talked about a site at Laney College in Oakland, at the Howard Terminal in Oakland. They went 0 for 5. Now, they have a binding agreement to buy land in Vegas. We heard all the news. But they still have to get public funding. And who knows how that's going to work out. Chances are they end up with it. But John Fisher is still the dork of the week. And he's still the dork of the week because he didn't want to be in Oakland. He talked about, or his people talked about, being rooted in Oakland. But he tore the team down. He basically engaged in a self-fulfilling prophecy. Fans won't come. Our stadium's a wreck. Our team stinks. We got to get out of here. That's wrong. And I'm not saying a deal in Oakland was easy to come by. Obviously, it wasn't. They've had all kinds of issues there. 
But at the same time, it's a great fan base. And they've dumped on that fan base. And Mark Carrig was on foul territory last week talking about it more eloquently and passionately even than I can. It's not right what happened. And for that, I'm going to give an honorable mention, Dork of the Week, to the commissioner, Rob Manfred. John Fisher is one of his 30 owners. Now, I know it's a private business. Rob Manfred can't control John Fisher. But he can control what goes on in his sport to a certain degree. And John Fisher has benefited from getting revenue sharing over the years. And he's put horrible teams on the field the last couple of years, torn down the payroll, basically torn the team down to nothing. It's not right. Should not be happening. And it has happened. So John Fisher, again, Dork of the Week, Rob Manfred, honorable mention. I'm not blaming him entirely for this. He can't. But I don't know, man. John Fisher's taking a lot of revenue sharing money from big market teams. And doesn't seem to me that he spent it all that much or all that well. That's the dude and Dork of the Week. Coming up this week on Fox, I'm looking forward to this one. Braves at Mets. I'm back home after 10 days or so on the West Coast. Braves at Mets will be a fascinating matchup of the two AL East powers, or I should say two of the AL East powers. Don't want to exclude the Phillies. Braves were swept by the Astros over the weekend, finally looked a little bit vulnerable. Their bullpen shaky in some respects. But the biggest question with the Braves right now is how long is Marcel Azuna going to stay on this team? Azuna right now, 4 for 51 on the season. 4 for 51! with 15 strikeouts. And you might say, well, why is he still on the roster? Why don't the Braves DFA him? Very good question. And the reason is, Marcelo Zuna started the season with $37 million remaining in the final two years of his contract. The Braves want to obviously give him every chance to succeed. I get that. I get how the money comes into play, even with his domestic violence suspension. This is how teams think. I don't necessarily agree with it, but... They don't want to blow their money. Well, guess what? The Diamondbacks, faced with a pitcher who wasn't throwing all that well, who didn't look like he was going to turn it around, just ate $34 million on Madison Bumgarner's contract. The Diamondbacks did that. The Braves can do that too. And at some point, it's going to be an issue for them. They've got Michael Harris II and Travis Darnot on the injured list. They're going to come off. Roster spots are going to be at a premium. Azuna is dead weight at this point. They've got to pay him anyway. And maybe at some point, you need to say as an organization, this isn't working. We can't have him here anymore. We've got to take the hit. All right, let's get to the fan questions. This one comes from Max Grant. I appreciate him using his real name, assuming that is his real name. He says, which team are you now starting to worry about after their start to the season? I'll tell you which team I'm worried about. And I know a lot of people in baseball believe this team is going to be just fine, but I'm worried about the Cardinals. And they're already six and a half games back. That's not that big a deal. It's the Pirates in first place. They can come back. But the Cardinals, a team that we expected would have rotation problems, have only three quality starts the whole season. Their offense has not been as good as I thought it would be and as I think it will be. Their bullpen has been somewhat shaky as well. But it's the rotation that is the biggest issue. And unless they get that rotation turned around somehow, and I'm not sure they can, it's really a collection of threes, fours, and fives, then they're going to have problems. And I don't know that they're going to be the team we all thought they could be. 
Next question comes from Brandon Warren. Is it possible for five AL East teams to finish above 500? This is a great question, Brandon, because it's never happened. Not since the realignment in 1993. Never seen five teams in any division finish over 500. We've had some close calls. In fact, the AL East last year was a relatively close call. Four teams over 500, the Red Sox at 78 and 84. So this year, can all five in that division finish above 500, finish with winning records? I tend to doubt it. I don't see the Red Sox being quite that good, though they've played better of late. But here's the wrinkle that comes into play. The unbalanced schedule is no more. It's more balanced now. It's not completely balanced, but it's more balanced. So the AL East teams won't spend as much time beating up on each other. They're not playing each other 19 times. They're playing each other 13 times. And with that, playing outside the division, playing some stronger opponents, yes, but some weaker opponents as well, it seems to me that there is a better chance of all five teams going above 500 than there has been in the past. All right, here comes a random question, or at least a random ID. Dodgers Kings fan asks, does Jose Iglesias make sense for the Dodgers? Considering the state of the Dodgers depth chart at shortstop, yes, he makes sense. Any live body would make sense. They've lost Gavin Lux. They've lost Rojas for a time now. They're playing Mookie Betts at shortstop, which is cool, and he's really good at it, as we've seen, but I don't know that that's something they want to do long term. Jose Iglesias is a guy the Dodgers looked at in spring training after Lux went down. They didn't sign him. I don't know that they want to sign him now. And they actually, the Dodgers, might have competition because Iglesias also makes sense for the Giants, who really could use a backup for Brandon Crawford. They've got Thyro Estrada. He's the guy. They slide him over. They play others at second. Could be VR. But the Giants are a little thin in that regard. And I know they've got Casey Schmidt at AAA, and they're playing him at short, but he's a young guy still. There is some question with Crawford and how long he can sustain it and how long he'll stay healthy. Iglesias is a guy that fits for a number of teams. Doesn't fit great if he was such a great fit, he'd be with a team already. But I don't know that the Dodgers are going to jump in that particular case. Heck, watching Mookie play, sec uh, heck, watching Mookie play short... I don't know that you want to do it long term, as I've said, but man, he is so athletic, so good, such great baseball instincts. I wouldn't mind looking at it for a little bit longer. This one comes from Mills. Are you staying on Twitter after having your verification removed, or will you leave like others who are worried about imposters? Mills, this is a good question, and here's something I will tell you. Yesterday, I get a text message from my son who says, hey, what are you doing? You paying for the blue check mark? I said, no, I'm not paying for the blue check mark. He goes, well, you have one. So I guess Elon Musk taketh away and Elon Musk giveth back, at least with regard to my blue check mark. I have no idea whether it will stay there or not. But to answer the question, yes, I am staying on Twitter. I will stay on as long as it's a viable way to communicate with fans. The moment it becomes not viable, then obviously I'll have to think of something else. And I haven't given it much thought, to be honest. I know Twitter's having major problems, but it's still working, at least from my perspective. So I'm going to stay with it. And I guess I need to thank Elon for the free blue check mark, which once he sees this, and I'm sure he's watching, he'll almost certainly take away.
That's it for this week. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone for watching. Remember, we're available on YouTube, obviously. And we also are available wherever you get your podcasts. We're a podcast, we're a show, we're whatever you want us to be. So I hope everyone has a great week, and we'll talk to you next Monday. Hey, BetMGM is running an MLB Bet $10, get $100 instantly promo when you use the bonus code SPICYMLB. You can get this offer in four easy steps. Sign up and deposit at least $10 into your newly created account. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app on iOS or Android. Place a pre-game Moneyline wager of at least $10 on any MLB team to win at standard odds price. Then you will receive $100 in bonus bets instantly. If you sign up in Massachusetts or Ohio, you will receive $200 in bonus bets. Just remember to use the bonus code SPICYMLB. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLING.